Hello, this is Frank Valby with Frank Presents. And today it's my privilege to have the Reverend Doctor <laughs> Jacob Junker, the pastor of the United Methodist Church here in Franklin. And today we're going to talk about when someone passes away. And throughout history, as far as I can seem to trace back, it, there always has seemed to be some sort of ritual uh, on the passing of a human being. Uh, can you give the reason? And It seems to be an integral part of every culture uh, that has uh, existed. I maybe can't speak to the specific rituals throughout history. I do think it is uh, a natural thing to want to mark something that happens to everyone. Uh, so, you know, regardless of one's culture, human beings don't live forever, right? So there is a need to mark this experience. And quite certainly, maybe even answer some questions or give some sort of assurance. If this is going to happen to all of us, what happens next? Uh, and I, so I think it is. Uh, there's probably a twofold reason then for the ubiquitous nature of funerary rites, in that one, people have a need to mark the occasion in some way, and two, need to wrestle with that question of what happened what happens to the person. They were here and the body is still here, but something seems to be missing or gone. And we know that, you know, biologically that body won't itself won't even be there forever. So what, what happens next? Uh, and I, I think across cultures and even across religions, funeral rituals and rites try to in some way address those questions in some way, shape, or form. Let's hit on the ritual first. In, in my lifetime, okay, funeral rituals have changed. Like in my lifetime, birth a lot of times happened in homes. Funerals definitely happened in homes. Mm -hmm. My grandfather uh, was buried from his house. Uh, Probably uh, during uh, the Irish in Boston, the traditional would be like a, a two evening calling hours uh, from six to eight. Uh, the priest would come in and the rosary would be said. And there was uh, kind of the veterans of World War II might tell war stories. The men might gather and tell war stories. Yeah. And, and, uh, I lived near uh, Forest Hills and, and uh, cemeteries. Uh, I can remember on Memorial Day all the women, Italian women, dressed in black, carrying picnic lunches and pails and going to the grave sites and having a lunch. Uh, later on now, it, it, it moved to uh, uh, more services, maybe uh, uh, there were videos or pictures in the funeral home, uh, and uh, more uh, cemetery 
uh, rituals at the cemetery. But boy, after COVID, everything has changed. Mm -hmm. how, how do you see the tracing of the ritual part of the question? So I, I have a unique professional experience in having served in churches in three different states and two different regions of the United States. And I can, there's marked differences between uh, the way of the funerary rites in say in Indiana, where I pastored and grew up, uh, at, or grew up and pastored at the beginning of my career, and uh, funerary rites and traditions here in New England. There are quite a few differences there. Um, a couple of the things that I have noticed in the ritual is the rituals have gotten, this traces for both regions of the United States, the rituals have gotten simpler. Uh, and so I think for people who maybe aren't religious could maybe identify with, um, like communion used to be a pretty standard practice. It's still in our funeral liturgy. Um, but that's usually, I, I can maybe count on my hand in the 15 years I've been in ministry, how many times I've done communion at a, at a funeral. Um, let alone the litany of scripture readings and prayers. There's, there's, there has been kind of a tightening and simplifying of the ritual uh, over, over the last several years. And I don't, have, I don't have any real reason to know why other than I know that it is what is being requested more and more. I mean, have my maybe guesses, but they're just anecdotal guesses more than anything else. Um, yeah, it's, it's a sh I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm in the liturgical business as a pastor, so it's kind of a shame, I think, the reduction of the liturgy, mm -hmm. uh, because I think in every tradition that liturgy is there to do the two things I mentioned earlier, acknowledge what has happened, but also people process what's been going on. In the, in the people too, uh, are they still, if they're having a funeral service in a church, are they still integral that the pastor is kind of giving the theological explanation hmm. of life and the friends and relatives are giving the human nature of the individual that has passed. I think from my experience that observation would hold hold true. That is, the pastor is there as a symbol of tradition, as um, an embodiment of the other, say God, um, and that's their role. And yes, the family, the friends who gather, their primary role is that reflective humanizing of the individual, not per se the theologizing and philosophizing on life and, yeah. and death. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty accurate. I, I've noticed that 
and a lot of times, even though there may be a funeral, it says that the interment will be a family affair. Yeah. Is there, why is that moving differently? Any idea? Uh, that's a great question. Um, that's a great question. I would maybe guess, and I think this may go to not just the internment being a family affair, but also the funeral rituals themselves being a private affair. Um, I, th I think there is. Um, People want to control the reflecting that goes on. I think there is an inherent danger of being let down when anyone and everyone can come, either by the reflections that are offered or the people that don't make the time to show up. Um, all of that is, this is pure speculation on my, my part and thinking on the fly, so don't, yeah. Yeah. don't think for a second that I have all the answers <laughs> right. answers right. there. But I have noticed more and more that when it comes to death, people do want it to be a private family affair. Clergy are called less and less. Even funeral home services are becoming fewer and fewer. Um, and I think some of that has to do with that fear of the unknown. I also think there's fear of cost um, and I can't speak for the funeral home side of things, but from the church side of things, uh, funerals are not where the church, the church doesn't make a business out of funerals. And I don't know of any religious community that makes a business out of those. So, uh, for anyone who may be watching, don't let expense keep you from contacting clergy person or utilizing the facilities of a house of worship. It, it seems we need to give a fact that probably most people are not affiliated with a church or a religious organization, uh, maybe particularly here in Franklin. And so as you mentioned, uh, uh, since Colvick, uh, there's a lot of times nothing. Right. A lot of times it was simply, uh, I, I had a relative uh, that I was warm passed away, mm -hmm. and, and I had a bridge uh, director, and they said, well, we'll have a memorial service later. Never happened, mm -hmm. never happened. And I think that for me is, is troublesome as a person that was either a relative or a friend, that uh, in some way I, I didn't get to go. Yeah. Uh, and, and it seems that it isn't necessarily good for either society or the family right. to just not have anything. I think it is immensely unfortunate. We need time to grieve and we need to allow others to grieve. So any one individual who dies has impacted a, a more significant group around them than what they may have even recognized in their own lifetime and not allowing those people to gather and remember that life lived 
um, if the family doesn't allow that opportunity, it deprives that bigger group the opportunity to really grieve in a space and a way that is appropriate. I 100% agree. I, I, I agree to some extent with some folks wanting to say make an internment a private family affair at the cemetery um, because that can be a deeply emotional final goodbye as a body is laid into the ground. But to deny all of it, a public gathering of some sort, um, I, I would not recommend that as a as a clergy person and that's not because I want to do more funerals. I just yeah. think it's a deep human need to be able to, to grieve and we shouldn't deprive people of it. And, on, and in addition to that, we shouldn't deprive ourselves of being supported by those people who grieve with us. Right. Um, you know, it's not, when a, when a family has to bury someone, um, it can be really isolating. Don't make it more so by not having some sort of public gathering. Some sort of. The, um, the recognition of th that someone passed away. Many times I will go out of my way on purpose to ask maybe a year later or time later that I've seen someone and ask about the memory or, or uh, you know, something, uh, you know, what do you still recall? Because less and less is once the person dies, is that name or remembrance ever remembered? Exactly. Absolutely. One of my um, favorite original lines, although I don't think it's original to me, um, but one of the things I like to say in the midst of a funeral service, especially in soliciting people to make a public make a public memory uh, in the midst of the service is to say, you know, one of the ways that people continue to live in our midst is by the stories that we tell. Right. Uh, and if we don't tell those stories, I, I don't mean it to sound morbid, but there's a second death there. Right. There's and um, and so it's important to share to share those stories uh, and to have people tease them out. Like, like you mentioned. The, the other part that I realize is, as I reach the age that, that I am, that I, I was born in 1941, but because I knew my grandmothers on my mother's side pretty well, I really go back to about 1894. Hmm. I have a sense of the history from then until now, and and it seems to me that today most of that is simply not related or transmitted or expressed. Uh, you know, no one, no, no one particularly is going out of out of my way to say, you know, uh, you know, Frank. Uh, uh, do you remember the people on the soapbox <laughs> on the Boston Common, or right. or you know? Your grandmother was from Vermont. She was. She grew up as a, a, a farm daughter. What What made her move to Hudson, Mass? You know. Right. Uh, all of that 
seems again to be a loss for the individuals around that I know or relatives. Yeah. Um, and and it, it it's it's um, I, I, I'm sad about it. It may be, um, and it's something that we've had to adjust in the funeral rituals themselves. That people are not remembering the way that they used to, in a in a functional sense. Right. Uh, it's something that I've actually thought about. So. For instance, with my kid, when I, when I was growing up, when I was my children's age, it was customary to gather for a family event, and my grandfather would bring out a projector, and I'm going to look in this camera and say <laughs> I'm really not that old, <laughs> but they would bring out a projector, and they would look at old slide reels from when my father was a, a child, similar yeah. to the reflecting that you're talking about. Right. Um, it's interesting for me to think about with my kids, what will I do and what will they do as they tell their kids about their childhood should they have kids? And I think the remembering is different with digital technology and the assumptions that are made um, rightly or wrongly that you know all this information is going to be there in perpetuity and that that's clearly yet to be seen, right? Um, that maybe we are just remembering differently. It may not all be good or bad, but for those of us that live in this in-between time, it can be dangerous because what my kids are gonna be able to find out about me, because I've straddled those, time, those right. times, they'll be able to find out more, but what they'll be able to find out about my father and mother and their parents will be less, if not, largely gone altogether. Right. Uh, and so I think we do live in kind of an interesting time. People are learning to remember differently. Um, and I don't know if it's right or wrong. It is just different. It's just different. Yeah. Uh, and so those stories don't have to be, be verbally told yeah. when you can pull up someone's social media profile and look through or mm -hmm. whatever the, you know. I recently was uh, for a few years ago at a funeral of, my, of one of my relatives, um, and uh, one of the relatives uh, uh, didn't realize that in the obituary there was a name of another daughter that she never heard of. And that was because it was a crib death. Mm. And I don't believe, I can re distinctly remember being a young teenager and going with my mother and father to the house of the, where the crib death occurred. Um, but that, I'm certain, was never ever spoken of again, along with many other deaths of babies that that happened, and I would dare say, probably even today, if it happens, it probably is is something that is just kept quietly in the past. And again, I just think that that tears people up. We've we've talked a little bit about the loss of religious ritual, 
but just a societal ritual that is also becoming somewhat of a lost art is the writing of an obituary. Right. More, oh, very lost art. More and more, um, when a death occurs, there's simply a death notice in, in a, a newspaper or on a news source, if even that, if you even get that much. Um, you know, there is a lot missed there whenever um, someone doesn't sit down and try and really reflect back what type of life did this person mm. lead. And, yeah. and that obituary was kind of a legacy leaving in some sense. So we talked about the stories that get told. Well, even if the stories stopped getting told, there would have been something in print in an obituary right. to remember right. said life. Um, but even that's not happening near, nearly as much. I, and I, um, I do gr I grieve that for our, our culture and, and society. Death is going to happen. Right. You know, it, it's going to happen. We can prolong it as long as we want. Uh, we can be healthy, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But uh, how, how should society or should society uh, encourage the remembrance of those uh, young people or infants that that passed away, or should it just remain quiet with the family? Why? Well, how how should we deal with that as religious individuals? I think as um, religious people, but one of the first pastoral calls I actually ever had was um, was was for a Sid's death. It was an awful, awful thing to have to sit with the parents, you know, when the coroner came to the house. Um, I think it's important for people to recognize that funeral services, memorial services, whatever you want to call them, that those rituals are not primarily for those who have died. It's to help those who remain to begin to process the grief. And so when it comes to say uh, the death of a young person or even an infant, arguably even a stillbirth, um, there may be a lot to that grief that I do not understand. I do not understand from my personal experience. But I would challenge the family to be reminded that those rituals are important for them uh, and not just a remembrance of the life that has since stopped. Yeah. Uh, and so I would still argue the same, that we need to remember those lives and um, the lives of those children, young people, uh, and help those who remain to process that immense grief. Uh, and to not do that, to keep it all quiet, may, as I mentioned earlier, kind of keep one from receiving the support that one really needs to move forward. When there's a shooting or a, a death by tragic accident, uh, school shootings, automobile accidents, teenagers pass away. Uh, it seems 
that it's no longer the cemetery that people are going to to remember the individual by. It's the flowers of where they died. Mm-hmm. It, it is the place of, of their death. And in Celtic spirituality, there's uh, a thing uh, uh, called the place of your resurrection. You go to die where you're going to be resurrected. Um, that, that change has allowed even people that didn't know the individuals to, to express uh, condolences or remembrance. Uh, but that has drastically changed over the years. Yeah, it, it is interesting how the place gets tied to the tragedy. Um, but I, I've also noticed, and this isn't so much, and you know, this is just my own observation, not necessarily as a clergy person, but just mm-hmm. as a human being in communities you know, that bears witness to this, these events. I think those places are often marked. You think about like um, where an accident happened on the side of the highway or uh, at a major intersection or something like that. I think the place is important not only to remember the life but the actual harm that was done there. So I, um, my individual, not vocational interpretation, my own individual interpretation of that is, is it is kind of a, almost a, like social activism, if you will, um, to say, hey, you know, someone was hurt here. Yeah. Pay attention, <laughs> pay attention. Right. Not to make light of it, I didn't mean to right. chuckle, but right. to pay attention. Yeah. You know, this has been a place where something tragic happened. Yeah. Uh, and there, there could be spiritual underpinnings there, but I also, my personal interpretation, I've not had anyone close to me in those situations where I've been part of something like that, w- would be kind of that activism or awareness, maybe a better word. For people that live in Franklin, that remember the Trooper Barry a road that is off Lincoln Street. It's a bridge. Uh, Trooper uh, Barry was uh, died in in on duty. His wife just passed away. Uh, I read in in a, a notice uh, she was living in in Dorchester. But for people that remember the bridge and the trooper, uh, I just want to report his wife has passed away. Moving more toward the immortality or the the life after death, and, and there's uh, a number of, of uh, theological, philosophical, <laughs> uh, comical. Um, sure. uh, you know, I I think of uh, the cowboy poem reincarnation, but uh, there, there's a lot of different uh, thoughts and aspects. But what what how would you express the Christian attitude uh, toward death? What toward death or toward life after death or both? Well, uh, toward life after death. Uh, how would how would you express while we're living? I guess how would you express a, an attitude about once you pass on? So I think 
um, many may be surprised to know that even within the, the Christian tradition and even in the Christian scriptures, there are several different understandings of what happens after death. Uh, I think a good Christian attitude toward death, uh, and this holds, uh, we might say holds water in the gospel, to say that it's not something we should fear. Uh, it's not something we should necessarily be, you know, jumping up and down, hoping happens tomorrow kind of thing either. But it is something we should look toward as just a regular part of life. Um, and we should face it not with fear, but with hope. That is that once we do pass, once we do die, uh, something awaits us. Uh, in, in my, where I'm at in my own personal understanding, it's hard to say, you know, what, when I was growing up, you know, these images of streets of gold and pearly gates kind of were thrown out there. Um, that's not an image that really excites me too much. Uh, personally, you know, um, neither do other religions uh, interpretations of, you know, other, other things. Uh, I think what excites me and I, and I think is a faithful interpretation of scripture is what awaits us after death is an embrace by God. An embrace by God. Yeah. And I, what that looks like, I wish I had more details. <laughs> uh, but I, I like to say it's an, it, it either is an absence from the love of God or, as you might say, it is the love in connection with God uh, that, that exists. Uh, but I, I, I would like to say in the scriptures, there seems to be two competing um, looks. One is that we will die and will, will not be risen again or nothing particular might be happening until Christ comes again yeah. and, and, and we're risen. Right. Um, and the, uh, the other one seems to be, yeah, uh, you know, if, if you're a, a Christian believer, you're going to be embraced in the umbrella of God. Yeah, uh, I, I would say there's probably three, actually. Okay. Um, in the New Testament, definitely leaning toward two of the two. But in the whole arc of the Christian scriptures that includes the Hebrew Bible, you get uh, an idea that after death you kind of go to this grayish underworld, uh, kind of purgatory-ish kind of thing, but there's no end to it. It is just, it's called, it's called Sheol. It is just the place where the dead go. Yeah. Uh, it is neither good nor bad, but it, it's definitely not life, right? So there's that. Then there's also, then there's the two you said. So after death, there will be a resurrection. Then the question is, is when? Is it an instantaneous thing or is it something that is delayed? Or um, it's something we're working toward. Or is it something that we, right, eventually get to? Um, I think there are some 
very important implications in those belief structures, um, which may be a fuller conversation at another time, but maybe one that's just worth raising at the moment in terms of usually those who believe that the resurrection happens instantaneously, you have to deal with the fact that the body is still in the ground here on earth, you know. Uh, and so there usually is some element of a spiritual body of some sort. Well, well, if when I die, I don't have to deal with this anymore, you know, God make me instead of six, three, you know, 248 pounds, God make me six, three and 220 or two, ten, you know, um, you know, straighten both my legs so that they're the same length kind of thing. Um, there is this idea that you'll get some sort of perfected other body. What's interesting in the idea of the delayed resurrection is often it takes more of the kind of Jesus approach. Uh, and in fact, some of the early Christian practice, the assumption was that when you're resurrected, you're resurrected back in the body from which you, right. you had. Right. Uh, which includes all of its imperfections. So, um, so take care of the body, the implication being take care of the body while you're living in it because you're going to come back and get the same thing back. Um, those are subtle differences in belief and understanding, uh, but have pretty big impact for the way we live our lives now. Um, I, I, in my own faith, I, I look toward a physical resurrection. Uh, one of the most impactful events um, that I've ever had or places I've ever been is I had the opportunity when I was in college to visit um, a place called Mount Athos in Greece. Called what? Mount Athos in Greece and it is the monastic center of Orthodox Christianity. Uh, so I got to tour some monasteries with an Orthodox priest and uh, in every one these, these are monasteries that would house a thousand monks each. Uh, and they had little bitty cemeteries. <laughs> and what they did is they'd bury them, and then once all the flesh had decomposed, they would dig up the bones and stack them in a crypt so that all the, uh, the brothers, they were all men, that all the brothers would see resurrection together, yeah. regardless. Of, I find that to be quite beautiful, personally. Um, the, yeah. the, at, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, there is an old Greek Orthodox monastery where the skulls of all the priests re reside in just like a, a an open uh, corral. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The mentioning the the, the monastic uh, uh, calling. It 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 seems to me as a child of God or a human being, right? If anything, there's something I should be doing or a purpose in my life while I'm living. That it's this time that my life exists that I ought to be conscious of who I am and why I'm here and, and what is what it, we, we both believe in being called, I believe. We both yeah. believe in being called to do things, right? Sure. Yep. And 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 if you're looking at at life as a whole or toward death, 
it seems like that everyone who's human should consider that. And sh should be recognized for living into what they've been able to accomplish, like to celebrate ab absolutely the purpose that they lived into. Um, yeah, I, I do, I, everyone has, is, is gifted, everyone has talents, and it is our responsibility to use those gifts and talents to better the world in this life yeah. as we, as one approaches death or even after one has died, it is immensely fitting to look back on that life and to say, to have some amount of satisfaction that they found their call and contributed in whatever way, shape, or form. I um, preached a couple weeks ago, we all have gifts and they can, they, they can um, come in any variety of shapes and, and, and forms. So, you know, if, you're, if your talent is, uh, I don't know, um, arranging flowers or your talent is, um, the talent that you've garnered is heart surgery, both of those gifts should be equally celebrated as the contribution to life and culture that they are. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, always had a reflection at the end of the day about his day and what he learned from him, learned from it. Um, how do you reflect on, on uh, or how would you recommend people reflect on their life and, and with, with what questions or purpose should you look at your life? I think some important big questions to ask may be uh, in terms of one's purpose. There are, there are a lot of reflective questions that one could ask about have I been moral or ethical? Have I been attuned to God? That was a lot of Wesley's reflections. But if, if we were to stick with kind of this giftedness and purpose, um, maybe a, a great place to start is um, have I done any good today or in the last week or whatever? Uh, and have I done any harm? And what talents is it, have I used to do those things? Um, that might be a good place to start. I don't know that that's, it's Wesleyan in its reflective nature. Those are not questions he would have asked. Right. <laughs> um, but it just generically or generally thinking, uh, even reflecting on someone else's life, remembering someone, that's a great place to start. You know, oh, what, it is. what good did it they is. do? Yeah. Was there any harm that was done? And Could, what were the gifts that they used? Particularly people that influenced you. Absolutely. Or, that, or, or people that you looked up to. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a great place. I, I do admit that I thought as a young person, if I lived to get as old as I am, I would be looking back with, you know, cheer and happiness and <laughs> and 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 just you know everything is the everything is wonderful with the world and i can't do that i i can't look back uh, not not that i can't find happy times or or some maybe good things i did 
but I have a lot of regret. And I, I, I got to believe that I'm not the only person that has got this old and not seen a lot of regret. Although society necessarily, to me, doesn't recognize that older people have that side also of an, a long life. Well, I, I, have, I have come to this realization very recently. Um, I am convinced that we don't grow old. <laughs> it just old happens. <laughs> and it creeps up on you before you realize it. So, Because I, we're in different stages of life, but I'm entering a different stage of my life. And uh, as a having to admit that I'm a middle-aged person now and no longer a young person, and I don't see myself as that. So I wonder if some of those regrets that you and perhaps others experience, um, part of it is just your recognition that you feel like you still have more to, to accomplish and do. Um, and you realize all the days you've had to do them, but at the same time wonder if all those days really have passed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The beauty of a healthy relationship with death would be to say, well, I have these regrets, and I know that I've had all these days to accomplish X, um, but I have today. And I'm going to plan like I have tomorrow, and I'm going to do my best to live today and plan for tomorrow. Yeah. And um, you do what you can. What's the question that I haven't asked you around this subject that you came here and wanted to, wanted to express? Well, I was for sure, knowing your love for music, Frank, that you would ask me about my favorite funeral songs. I thought for sure you might ask that question and and it's the uh, reason what, I... What is your favorite funeral well, song? I'm glad you asked that question, Frank. So I have two and they're not very traditional and I know you would appreciate that as well. Right. So these songs um, come from official kind of Methodist-related sources, but are not in the hymnal. This come from the Upper Room Worship book. Okay. And these are songs that I've recently found. Right. Uh, and the first one is called In the Quiet Curve of Evening. Um, and so rather than read you the whole thing, I'll read you, um, I'll read you the last verse and the refrain. So the last verse goes, in the mystery of the hungers, in the silence of my rooms, in the cloud of my unknowing, you are there. It's a song, a prayer to God. In the empty cave of grieving, in the desert of my dreams, in the tunnel of my sorrow, you are there. I think it's a beautiful just reassurance of yeah. what's a, what awaits us. And the refrain is, you are there, you are there, you are there. Uh, and the other uh, song is called Bring Us Home, and this is actually not a funeral song at all. Uh, it's a song about hospitality, but I think it speaks to death, or at least my hopes in death. Okay. Uh, and the the, um, the, um, the first 
ver the refrain in the first verse go like this they go bring us home on love's renewing tide to the place of our belonging bring us home to your redeeming side bring your scattered people home from our weary night bring us to the light to the place of our belonging with your warm embrace waken us to grace bring your scattered people home those are great um, and beautiful those lyrics are great profound lyrics i those were the i was for sure frank assuming that you would ask me about music so i came prepared well you can mentally mark that the three that i probably will have whose morning is broken lord of the dance and how great thou art i we didn't talk about that i know in a previous conversation with uh with jim ginley of Ginley Funeral Home, you um, talked about pre-planning. Right. This is a good, gentle reminder that you can do pre-planning not only with a funeral director, <laughs> but you can also do it with your uh, um, your local religious leader, pastor, rabbi, etc. And, and it would make significant difference in the service. Yeah. Uh, because probably I would say to you, take the opportunity to compare me with John Wesley because the people in the pews probably won't be United Methodist. So take the opportunity. All right. Take the opportunity. To preach. To, to preach. preach <laughs> <Wesley>. <laughs> and, and, you know, I have asked the studio here, right? Uh, and I hope they remember it, right? Well, they will now. I, I hope they remember it. That the last Frank Presents show that I want done is my funeral. And, and that that from the, uh, you know, church, uh, they would set up and uh, record my funeral as the last Frank Presents show. So there it is. There it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Reverend uh, Dr. Jacob Junker, thank you for being here. I, I hope uh, we can make this more often. And uh, from both of us, Frank Falvey and uh, Jacob, we wish you an attitude of hope and uh, thoughtfulness uh, as you contemplate uh, moving toward the eternal life. Thank you. Thank you. This program was made possible by your Franklin friends and neighbors. Good folks, just like you. Thanks for supporting Franklin TV. And thanks for watching.